And if you have some sort of Bible, uh, you need to get that out and, and look at the back of the bulletin. Uh, you're going to find the outline of sorts with all the scripture references that um, I'll be addressing. And uh, as I was listening to a man say this week, it is not it is my responsibility to, to try to accurately handle the word of truth. And it's your responsibility to check me on that. So make sure that you're reading these verses, the scriptures from Jeremiah and the New Testament as we go through those today. And if you need a Bible study of sorts or some kind of devotional structure to help you through the week, just take this uh, thing on the back home, uh, read through those scriptures, pray over what we talked about in that particular issue, and it will be a blessing to you, uh, I hope. So today, we are continuing our sermon series on Safely Home as we talk about the common things that Jeremiah addressed in his prophecies towards the nation of Israel and, his, uh, and Judah and the surrounding nations of Egypt and Babylon and Moab and the others that were around. Because God had chosen Jeremiah to be the fourth teller, the prophet, the one who was speaking God's truth to the nations at that particular time. And we're thankful for that because there's a lot of wonderful things we can glean from that we talked about the common uh, compromise that uh, sometimes hits us as a people last week. And this week we want to talk about the common captivity that we share uh, with the Israelites in the land of Judah, the Judeans. Uh, because it is appropriate, especially at this particular time in our life, because there are many who believe in this post-Christian period, we are indeed held captive by imperial forces that we need to uh, be aware of. So we're going to talk about that today because we are either going to be captivated by deceit or we are going to be captivated with the idea of God's deliverance when we're in this condition. And you might think to yourself, well, I'm not captivated. Well, hold on. We'll get to that as we go through the sermon today. So pay careful attention as we do that. We also want to welcome all those who are joining us on live. As I left the sound booth here just a few minutes ago, we were still uh, on live and uh, it's been a, a challenge to try to make sure we get all the settings correct so that we're going out and live streaming. So those who are joining us uh, live at home, thank you for being with us. And those who might be joining us later, we welcome you as well. The most important thing for us to remember about the idea of captivity is that it is not our destiny. Captivity for God's children is not our destiny. It really is a time for us to accept God's discipline. And we read about this story in Jeremiah where the children of Israel were taken into captivity. And when I say children of Israel, it can be confusing when you're reading through the Old Testament scripture because the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, uh, even though it included the tribes of Benjamin as well and Ephraim. So the, the idea here is that as I talk about the children of Israel, we're just going to call them God's people, God chosen. When they were taken into captivity into Babylon, that was not their destiny and it never was intended to be their destiny. As a matter of fact, there are some scriptures we'll look at today that proves that for us. But the real question for us today when we read about those stories in the Old Testament is, are we somehow captivated by deceit? There's a movie that was out a couple of years ago called Captivated. The subtitle was Finding Freedom in a Media Captive Culture. It's on DVD. You can, uh, you can become a member of Christian cinema and uh, you can watch trailers and uh, it's just Christian cinema. Put that in your search bar and it should come up. And you can watch movies that are have a more family-oriented uh, perspective and don't have all the, the bad language and things like that in there. But you might check that out. And there you can rent Captivated for a couple bucks, I think. And it goes through the different things that uh, experts say our children and grandchildren are becoming captivated by when it comes to their technology, their social media. 
And you'll remember we called this generation screenagers because they always have a screen in front of their face. And if you have uh, a grandchild or a child that's uh, 10, 11, 12 and on up, that, that is their normal posture, you know, like this. And you know, one of these days, uh, maybe 50 years down the road, you're going to see people walking around like this all the time. And you'll know why, because that's there. That's where they were stuck with the screens. Now, whether or not you believe that our generation, the, the, the Generation Z, has been captivated in the one, the millennials, a lot uh, as well before them, they have been captivated or in captivity. You have to ask yourself, well, what are they captive to? And I believe Kim Commando gives us some insight. She calls herself the digital goddess. She is also a believer, and she uh, has this nationwide program where they just talk about technology. And she's not an alarmist by any means. She is someone who loves tech technology, talks about technology, gives technology away at Christmas time. But she warns that there is an invasive effort by big tech to captivate our children, our grandchildren, even us, so that they can monetize our captivation. In other, in other words, every time you pick up your phone, you turn on a screen, you're watching TV, you're, you're streaming uh, some streaming service, you are being monetized. You say, well, I'm paying that, you know, 15 bucks a month or for my internet service or this or that or the other thing. You do not pay near what it costs for them to be able to run all the gadgets and, and wonderful things that come to us. They are monetizing you by uh, having advertisers pay to speak to you. But also to have other people take you captive with their philosophies of life. And the question we have to deal with is, have we become enslaved to an imperial force because of idol worship? Now, let me explain that. What's an imperial force? It is any force that has control over us that makes us subservient to give them glory and to, um, to prosper them. Now, one of the big questions is, and proofs of that is simply the word Amazon. Jeff Bezos has more, more money than, I don't know, than, than some small countries. And I'm not saying that he's a bad guy or that he's done a horrible job. He's provided a service that has been, uh, that people have used and they've utilized. But really, how much of what you have kind of been captivated by in using that service has enriched someone else who has then turned around and used their enrichment to further extend their influence, their power, their prestige uh, over you. And I would encourage you just to investigate that for yourself as a question of do we have imperial forces who are taking advantage of us, exploiting us, manipulating us. And we are gladly doing that because we are worshiping what they have created for us. What's an idol? It is a man-made creation that people worship. And Jeremiah warns of a pattern that develops in which idol worship leads to imperial servitude. As a matter of fact, all of Jeremiah is this question of, will you end up serving the Egyptians? Will you end up serving the Assyrians? Will you end up serving the Babylonians or the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites that are all around you? They were pressed in on every side by enemies. And Jeremiah was trying to help them understand that it was their idol worship that was leading them into imperial servitude. Now remember specific truth, universal truth? This is one of those specific universal truths. Jeremiah could say to us today the very same thing. Imperial worship or idol worship leads to imperial servitude. And again, what is an idol? It is anything that takes priority in our life which we use our energy and our creativity and our effort towards that 
causes someone else who's in charge of that imperial, imperial force to have more power over us. Now you just think about that in common terms of the, the, the children of Israel and the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted to not just enslave them, but to absorb them into his culture so that it would empower him and prosper him and make him even more powerful than he was. He was taking the very best of every nation that he conquered and he was using them as his servants to further his particular political power and cause. Jeremiah spoke about that very clearly. Are we worshiping the idols of our day and becoming servants of imperials? Now, they don't have to have a crown to be imperial. They don't have to have a crown to dictate to you how you should live, how you should think, what you should eat, what you should drink. They just have to have the power that you have abdicated to them because you have been worshiping things men have made. Now, more and more people are having a neo-realization moment in which they are awakened to the idea that they're already just batteries powering the technological kings we serve. You remember Neo in Matrix. He took the, was the red pill or the blue pill? Which one did he take? Does anybody remember? He took one of them. And it made him realize that he was nothing more than a battery in a big machine of great big uh, computers. And it was a metaphor for our time, still is. There are many who are having kind of a neo-realization where they're being awakened to the fact that we're nothing more than cogs in someone else's machine. We're batteries powering the infrastructure of some greater person or thing that is exploiting and manipulating and using us to prosper themselves. And many Christians are beginning to wake up to the reality, this reality as well. And that's why we're going to talk about Christian dissidents as the year goes on, because a Christian dissident is someone who awakens to the fact that God is no longer Lord of their life, so to speak, or in, in, in a cultural sense, someone that the culture is worshiping as a whole or as a part of their tradition or history. It's been overtaken by godless secularism, and so they're no longer serving uh, in a culture, in a nation, or in a society which honors or respects God. And in, in, in many cases, that society is trying to secularize or move God completely out of our lives. You may be a Christian dissident because you're waking up more and more to this reality that we have been taken captivity by things we didn't even know were our slave, were, were our slave masters. And we've lost the freedom that Christ has granted to us and has bought and paid for through His very precious blood on the cross. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 13, helps us better understand this idea of freedom. It says in Galatians 5, 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. Then it goes on to say in verse 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. So we are called to be free. We should not be yoked again by the burden of slavery. And what is slavery? It is our indulgence to this flesh, our idol worship, that distracts us from our primary purpose in life, and that is to serve humbly one another in love. What does God want us to do? He wants us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jeremiah is revealing to us the pattern of captivity that we can learn from that will help us be aware of how we are being captivated. And how captivity is designed to burden us again with the yoke of slavery by enticing us to fully indulge in the flesh. And the thing you need to know about the idols of Jeremiah's day is that as you read through them, and we're going to discover a lot about the idols this year. As you read about these idols, they were man-made tricks in order to entice people to indulge in fleshly experiences. 
instead of honoring the one true creator God. There was a pattern that developed that Jeremiah identifies that takes place in three stages. And we need to ask ourselves, what stage are we in as a people when it comes to being enslaved by indulging in the flesh? The first stage is pictured in the captivity of the first group of uh, Judeans, uh, the children of Israel that were taken into captivity, and that is called the demoralization stage. Daniel was one who was, along with the uh, the rich and, and uh, some of the, the higher ups in terms of the culture, uh, the royal type people, they were carried away into captivity and Jehoiakim uh, was made king uh, by uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh Necho before that. But good King Josiah, who was the, the hope of Israel before all the bad things started to happen, he was killed in battle in the Battle of Megiddo by Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt. You can find this in reference 2 Kings chapter 23 and 24. Read 2 Kings 23 and 24. Read 2 Chronicles 33 through 35, I think. It tells these stories that we're talking about. So Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, he makes Jehoiakim king. And in his third year, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, he comes and he besieges the land of Judah. The final vestige of the kingdom of Israel. And he deports to Babylon the best and the brightest of Judah's future. Like Daniel. And Daniel, and you'll have to remember this because it will have some context for us later. He was raised under the revival of Josiah. Whose people found the book of law. And we're going to dig into this a little bit deeper later. But they found the book of law. They found the Bible, so to speak. And no one had known or read in years and years and years. They found the Bible and then they realized that they had fallen so far away from God that Josiah led a reform, a revival. And Daniel and, and Ezekiel and, and uh, Mordecai, and these are big stories in Babylon, they knew about this revival. They benefited from it and it would help the children come back from captivity. But what happened was that Nebuchadnezzar, he demoralized the people because he wanted to take away from them that hope and bright future that God was blessing them in through the revival of Josiah. He tried to, Satan tried to, through Nebuchadnezzar, squelch that revival and repentance that they had come to as a nation that they thought was going to save them. And part of the problem was Josiah got a little full of himself and he went out to battle Pharaoh Necho and he was killed in the battle of Megiddo. And so his son, an evil son, took the throne. The devil likes to demoralize us by stealing from us the best and the brightest hopes that we have for the future. But then there's the next stage, which is called deconstruction. That was where Ezekiel and Jehoiakim, King Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, was taken into captivity. The story is that Jehoiakim betrays Nebuchadnezzar and sides with Egypt against him. So God sends Babylon and other nations against Jehoiakim and he dies. And then Jehoiachin takes the throne for three months when Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and takes him and 10,000 fighting men, among others, to Babylon, further deconstructing the stability of the nation. What did Nebuchadnezzar do in this second phase of deconstruction? Well, he took the power base, the military, and he took it and made them his slaves in Babylon. They're good leaders, they're fighting men, they're artisans, they were all captured and taken away to deconstruct the structure that made their culture strong. The priests and others. Then, later on, came the stage of destruction, where Zedekiah, who followed Jehoiachin as king, turned his back on Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who made Zedekiah king, uh, he did, Zedekiah did only evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he was also unfaithful to his 
alliance with Babylon. So Babylon returns to completely destroy the temple, the city walls, and anything else which could have been used to protect the Israelites in Jerusalem. And then Zedekiah was caught trying to escape, and all his sons were killed in front of him, and his eyes were plucked out. And then the last of the Jews were deported to Babylon. There was another deportation a little bit later on, but that was a volunteer group who went. But Nebuchadnezzar, tired of the betrayal and uh, following God's command, he went, goes in and he destroys the temple and the city and the walls to further convince the Israelites, the children of God, the Hebrew children, they were slaves of his. And all along, Jeremiah is telling them this is a part of God's discipline because they had turned their back on the revival of Josiah and followed the icons and idols of their day. The same pattern of moralization, deconstruction, and uh, destruction is at work in our culture to take God's chosen, that is the church, those who've chosen God, to take us into captivity. To enslave us again to sin through the indulgence of the flesh made more certain by entertainment, social media, and big technology. Their goal is to make us subservient slaves to their imperial efforts of complete control by demoralizing us, that means shaming us out of our belief, by deconstructing the pillars that protect us, that is the church and uh, the, the pastorate, we'll call it. And we see how there are uh, a big percentage of pastors just calling it quit after, quits after last year. And then by destroying the country that has protected our religious freedom and expression through secularism and now uh, progressivism, there's an effort to say that Christianity is lawless and we need to be re-educated so that we can get rid of those ideas and our freedom from in Christ and our freedom of religion and expression will be taken away if we allow that to happen. They want to completely destroy our tradition. Now, you may say, I don't think that we are to that point yet, and that's fine. We can argue the nuances of captivity. But when we talk about this in a safely home uh, perspective, part of my research has been listening to Dr. Chuck Messler's commentary on Jeremiah. And he makes this observation uh, he passed away a few years ago. But he made this observation, when we lose our commitment to God, human relationships become insecure. That was his takeaway of his study of Jeremiah. That when we lose our commitment to God, human relations become insecure. He was worried about the captivity of the church back in the 90s because his observation what that is now taking on even greater clarity for us is that no one trusts anyone anymore. Why? Because we stop trusting God. And when you do not grasp God as a part of life and His morality and His truth and His standards, who can you trust? It doesn't matter what they tell you, they're lying. And our relationships become insecure. It's happening not only in a political theater, but it's also happening in the personal lives of those who are here today. We don't trust one another anymore. We can't trust one another anymore. We can't trust one another personally, politically, privately, because we have no grasp of God. We no longer live from His perspective. We live out of fear. We have become like those in Jeremiah's day, in Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, where it said, My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Meaning that we are rejecting Jesus Christ as the water of life, the truth. And we're trying to build our own cisterns that have great big cracks in them that can't hold any truth we think we're putting into them. It will just run away. And when we get into that situation, we become insecure and fearful and we can't trust one another. 
And our goal here in the church this year is to get safely home to heaven by making sure we are safely serving God in our homes, strengthened by the teaching of the church, supported by the community of believers in the culture at large, not just the believers here at Palestine, but every friend that you have who's a believer in Christ, we need to be encouraging one another. This is at greater risk now than ever in our nation's history because of the captivation situation. The good news, though, is that captivity is never the destiny of the people of God. So even if we have been captivated on some level, if we have been demoralized, deconstructed, and destroyed in some, on some level, captivity is not God's destiny for us. It is a period of discipline for us. God loves us and He disciplines those who He loves. And in the promise that He makes when He says, I'm going to send you into discipline, I'm going to send you into captivity, the promise He makes is that of restoration and restitution. As a matter of fact, 400 years before they were taken captive, Solomon offered these wise, these wise words in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 36-39. This is 400 years before they're taken into captivity. It says, When they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, We have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn to you in all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken, and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen toward and the toward the temple I have built for, for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. 400 years before they were taken into captivity, Solomon makes this promise. That if we will repent, if we'll turn our hearts back towards God, He will hear our pleas and He will uphold our cause. And if we are in some form of captivity in this culture, and we'll argue about that a little bit more as the year goes along, the only thing we can really do is realize it's God's discipline in our lives so that we will respond to Him with repentance and confession. So our hope this year is to encourage a change of heart. That we'll change our heart in such a way where we realize those things that are trying to imperially, imperially enslave us. We need repentance and confession. Repentance is a simple word. It just means to turn and go 180 degrees a different way. We're going one way. We need to change and go the other way. And we won't do that until we admit and confess that we are headed into captivity or we are, are already captivated. And we need to turn our heart and our soul back to God. That means in worship and in uh, worship of Him alone and denying the power of idol worship in our own lives. And we do this so that God will hear our pleas, uphold our cause, and forgive us. And we will do that by digging deep into the teachings of Jeremiah so that we can clearly assess our current circumstance, carefully admit our, our situation in it, cautiously advance a godly point of reference in everything that we decide and courageously advocate a biblical point of view to those that we know. So let's talk about these things for a little bit. Clearly assess our current circumstance. Now we must assess how physically we are captivated by the imperial forces of this particular culture in which we live. Our imperial forces controlling us through our fleshly indulgence, our own form of idol worship, which is part of the discipline of God. Now you might say, I don't have any idols around my house. You don't. Do you have anything that comes before God that's in your house or in your life? Are the things that take priority in our homes where they distract us from our worship and our service and our obedience to God? Anything like that becomes our idol. And our world is really helping us because when you go from a pro-Christian society where the effort was tried to encourage people to look up to God, 
create a structure and um, a kind of a civilization where you're honoring God's patterns and principles of His Word. We've gone from that, and some of you can remember that day, to a post-Christian, even a post-modern society in which uh, there is really no truth. This is whatever you feel at the moment. Let's just do that. And everyone needs to respect and honor that. And so if you say, I, uh, I am a dog and my name is Rover, and that's what I want to be identified from this point forward, it is your responsibility to say to me, what? You are a dog and you are, your name is Rover. That's the kind of truth, uh, post-Christian world we live in today. And because we're in that way, we are very suggestible to different ideas. And every screen that we have, every, uh, every uh, device that we have that brings alternative voices into our life, whether it be on a radio, a television, our screens, tablets, our smartphones, whatever voices we're allowing to come into our life, if they're secular, I mean absent of God's truth, then they are leading us further and further into this captivity in which imperial forces, that means forces greater than us, that are monetizing our uh, obedience to them so that they can gain greater power and prestige and profit. Are we assessing that as our circumstance? Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 10 warns us, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive. That means to lead you away as booty. Uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental sp spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Are we being taken captive by deceptive and hollow philosophies that have us focus on human tradition and elemental things rather than on the power of Christ and His forgiveness on the cross who is the fullness of all deity? He's the head over all powers and all authority. Every authority that we might want to subject ourselves to or bend our knee to will bend their knee to Christ Jesus on that day that He returns. So skip all those people and just... Honor Him face to face. Because those folks cannot be trusted. It is a fact that some form of captivity has taken place physically because we live in this post-Christian age secularized by the progressivism of politics. And you know I don't get real political here. I don't like talking about politics. Very confusing for a lot of folks. But the truth is that as we see all parties drifting deeper into progressivism. It's a race towards the same goal. There just may be one party that's a little further ahead than the other. But all parties are heading that way. So what do we need to do about that? What do we do when they say we can't have prayer in schools? When we sanitize the public square of anything that might be biblical or godly? And most recently, the vilification of Christianity as an enemy of science. See, you can't be a Christian and also believe in science at the same time. However, you cannot believe in science and still believe in science at the same time if you are a non-Christian. And that's kind of a joke, but hopefully you get that. As Josiah illustrated, political leaders set precedents for their people. And when he was a good king and he set good precedents for the children of Israel, the land of Judah, they rose up to that and they revived in that. And it set forth the, the preparation of Daniel and Ezekiel and Ezra and others who would come back from captivity and reestablish the kingdom of God on earth there in Jerusalem. Political leaders do set precedents. And just like Jehoi, or just like Josiah set good ones, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah set bad ones. And we need to ask ourselves, and this is a little play on word, who is our precedent setter? The precedent setter of our lives. Now I have to say on my way in, I forced myself to pray for our current president because the Lord says pray for those who are in authority over you. So I will pray for our leaders. 
because I know they're setting precedents that either will lead us further into the depths of captivity or might give us the bright hope of revival. Which do you want? Are we clearly assessing our current situation of captivity? Secondly, are we carefully admitting our situation in it? Now, the circumstance is what it is what it is. All right. The situation is where do we want to situate ourselves in, in what it is? You follow me? So we live where it is what it is. the circumstance today is we're all here in this room. But you situated yourself where you wanted to be in it, right? So I wanted to be up here because I was going to speak to you. And most of you sit right back in the same spot you sit every Sunday. Uh, for what reason? I don't know. It could be the vents that because you like heat. It could be you're setting further away from them because you don't. It could be that you want to be further away because I'm prettier the further away you are. Who knows what it is while you sat where you sat. But you situated yourself in this circumstance. Are we carefully admitting our situation in our circumstance culturally? When Jeremiah talks about these things, he challenges us to situate ourselves even when the circumstance is gloom and doom. We, we must admit how personally we have positioned ourselves in this circumstance of captivity as victims or as victors. Like Daniel, as we'll learn more about him, you can read the story of Daniel this week if you want to. Daniel, he chose not to be a victim. He chose to be a victor. He helped and uh, helped uh, Nebuchadnezzar and he made things better for his people while they were in captivity to such an extent that later after Nebuchadnezzar died and the, the Persian, uh, Medan Persian gods rose up, they were so enamored by the Jews that they sent them back to rebuild their city and paid them to do it. That's all part of God's plan. But there was discipline in all of that in the exiles. In Romans chapter 7, verse 22 through 25, it explains our situation and our circumstance. It says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner. That means captive of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who can rescue me from this body that is subjected me to death? That's our circumstance. He goes on, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is our situation. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful, uh, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, oh, sorry, I skipped back. Let me, let me go back. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Then he continues in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sinner offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our circumstance is that we are slaves to the flesh, but we have situated ourselves in the freedom of Christ because He has dealt with that, because we are seeking the flesh. We're trying to live, or we're trying to live according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh. We recognize the circumstance. Flesh leads us into indulgence, which leads us into captivity, greater and greater depths of captivity, Captivity for our generation. And if you don't care about our generation, maybe you should care about the next two or three generations because if we keep going the direction we're going at the pace we're going, your children, your great grandchildren, your great great grandchildren won't even know who God is. It will be a moment uh, like Josiah had when they found a Bible in a storeroom in the temple. Our situation is. That we choose to see that there's no condemnation for in Christ, even though we're living in a world that is condemned. Daniel took the same approach when it came to his situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar said, you bend your knee to me. And they said, we will not. We will worship our God. So Daniel was going to be killed. And then you know what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got thrown in the fiery furnace. 
But because they believed in the one true God, they honored Him. God saved them. He preserved them in order to change the whole perspective that the Babylonians had towards the Jews. We do the same thing with our Christian faith today. It is a fact that we have no hope without Christ Jesus, and there is no condemnation that we should experience in Christ. Just the duty to situate ourselves as living according to the Spirit. Is that what you're doing in our world today? Everybody around you might be living for the flesh, but does that mean you have to? No. The circumstance might be dire. It might be the whole, the whole thing about the world is to lead us into sinful indulgence, into sexual immorality, into lust, into impurity, into all the things that Paul describes in Colossians. But are we choosing to live according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh? Because if we live according to the Spirit, then we have the fruits of the Spirit in our life. What are those? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, you know what those are. Those are all really good things to have. As Daniel and Esther illustrated, for such a time as this was their calling. It was not the best circumstance, but they situated themselves the very best they could in it. Is that what you're doing? Are you situating your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren? Are you situating them in such a way where they're serving the Spirit instead of the flesh so that even though culture might be captivated, they will still be free? No condemnation if they're in Christ Jesus. Then we need to cautiously advance our godly point of reference. Um, we must uh, cautiously advance the godly point of reference because as in the days of Jeremiah, there will be many false prophets and false leaders that are advancing deceitful proposals around us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22-26 warned, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must gently be instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to knowledge of the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See, the only way we can help people around us who've been taken captive is to have advance a godly point of reference. We do that as we talk to them, as we foretell to them. It is a fact that the gospel, telling the truth, always has and always will be the most powerful dynamic tool at our disposal because it is, it is truth that sets people free. And they know it. They hear it. It's a, like a breath of fresh air. And the truth brings all things back to a godly perception of life where we have the right point of reference. It is all about God. It is for Him, by Him, through Him we live. As Jeremiah illustrated, there are many false prophets, foretellers among us, and we must be careful to whom we listen. Remember Jeremiah, he got thrown in a cistern. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to hang him. There's some, um, some uh, lore, folklore, that they took him down to Jeremiah and some people stoned him. After all, or they took him to Egypt, sorry, and they stoned him. Now, we don't know that to be true for sure, but we do know what he wrote and what is recorded about him. And that was he was hated because the other prophets, the fourth tellers, those who said they spoke for God, uh, vilified him. Because he was telling the truth, but he stopped telling the truth. No, he kept bringing it back to the point of reference of God. And no matter what you're dealing with out there in the world with friends and neighbors or whomever, if they're captivated by all these indecent things, keep bringing the point of reference back to God. It is God. He is Lord. He is King. Tell them the truth because it's the truth that sets them free. Tell them about Jesus because he is their freedom giver. We need to ask ourselves, who is our prophet? Who's our prophet? And then we need to courageously advocate, sorry, the biblical point of view. We must courageously advocate the biblical point of view of repentance and restoration because our captives are advocating the point of view of uh, revolution and redef redefinition of truth and morality. 
Second um, Corinthians chapter ten verse three through five says, "For though we live in the world, we do not wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ." It is a fact that we possess the divine power of God as our point of view. And that empowers us to demolish any idea that sets itself up against Christ and the church. As illustrated by the two or three principle. We just don't use it. Matthew 18, 19 through 20. You remember that principle? Again, truly I tell you that if two or on you... Excuse me. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for. This is believers. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Do you feel the presence of God this morning? He is with us. We're gathered in His name. His power's in us. I can look out here and I can say, well, listen, there's a lot of empty seats. So I should be ashamed and, and dismayed and depressed and despondent. Oh, woe is me. But listen, God's taken up all those other seats. You just can't see Him. I don't do this for you. I, 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 I preach for, for the Lord to honor Him, to honor my calling. Because I believe that when we agree, and we need to agree more in prayer, and if you're having a problem with some situation or one other, get together with other believers in your family or other believers that you know and pray about it. If you're upset about culture, if you're upset about politics, don't vent and rant. Get together with other believers and pray about it. Pray for your leaders. Pray for God's wisdom. Pray for, for His His hand to be upon our nation. Because God says, where two are more gathered in my name and they ask for something that is according to my will, He will do that. And He tells us to pray for our leaders so that it may go well for us. That's His promise to us. We'll dig into that a little bit more later too. Who's our priest? The priest of the day was the one who was responsible for reminding people of the divine power that is among us and with us. We need to have that biblical point of view that God's power is what changes things and live in that. Now we must remember that for God's people, captivity is not our destination. It is the discipline required to prepare us for restoration. It would be easy to get on a bandwagon of gloom and doom. But Christians are free indeed. So whatever circumstance in which we find ourselves brought on by others, we can situate ourselves in blessing because our point of reference is that godly truth and our point of view is that of godly providence. The world will try to demoralize us, deconstruct us, destroy the culture, but they have no true power. This is all in God's hands. Everything that happened to the land of Judah and to God's people was in accordance to Jeremiah's prophecies as given to him by God. Remember what Jeremiah said to them. While they were in captivity, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. He promised them, I will bring you back from captivity. Read that whole verse later on. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. He also says in Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, when I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns, and once again, use these words, the Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. God is telling them that they will, they will be restored and they will rebuild. He will bring them back. And he says, the days are coming. And it will not be like the covenant I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. He's talking about the church age here. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's what we need to get back to. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more, he says. Now, again, we could debate the nuance of captivity. You could argue with me all day and say, well, you know, we're not in captivity. There's no foreign nation that has control over us. I've been told for the last four years Russia was in control of our nation. <laughs> the question here is, what really matters is only that we agree 
with God that captivity is not our home. It is but a school in which we learn repentance, confession, and obedience. And the only power our modern day captors have over us is that which we give to them in our attention, our acceptance, and our activities. We need to allow God to restore us to the freedom for which you have been created. We need to start with serving others humbly and stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is inflamed by the many screens in our life. The TV screens, the computer screens, the tablet screens, the smartphone screens. Each time you use one, consider how and to what you are captivating yourself. If it enslaves you to any kind of sin or encourages you to indulge in the flesh, turn it off or switch it to something different. It's not the tool that is sinful. It is the way that it is used. The Centers for Disease Control warns that children ages 8 to 10 spend an average of 6 hours per day in front of a screen. 6, to, six hours per day. Kids 11 to 14 spend an average of nine hours per day in front of a screen. Who are they talking to? Who are they listening to? Is it you? Is it God? More than likely not. Youth ages 15 to 18 spend an average of seven and a half hours per day in front of a screen. Who are they talking to? Who's talking to them? Who's captivating them? Now let me ask you a question. If you were the devil and you wanted to take a child into captivity, what one device would you use to steal them from their parents? captivity we must decide today if we are being held captive and to what extent and no it's not our destiny it is our discipline that God wants us to wake up have our neo moment realize what's going on in our circumstance and resituate ourselves in it so we have the right point of reference and the right point of view the godly ones then he'll restore and redeem and rebuild. Let's pray. Father, this is just a little sermon here in Sunday morning in Palestine, Ohio. I don't know what you're going to do with it, Lord, but I hope you use it in a mighty way. That you use it in a mighty way for the people who are gathered here, for these young people that are here. Maybe they're going to have their Josiah opportunity here where they are being trained and taught and they will rise up. And they will be the ones who restore this nation because of their faith and their belief, because they know that they're living in captivity. Maybe they will be the ones to choose like Daniel and Ezekiel and Esther and Mordecai and Ezra, that for such a time as this, they have been brought into this world to teach and to tell others about you, that we'll use our voice, our point of reference, and the point of view of Scripture to help those that we know. And for uh, uh, the older folks that are here, if we have children or grandchildren, help us to make a commitment today to seek out their lives, not to just turn them over to whatever things that they're seeing on their screens, but to have a relationship with them so that we are that focus. And through that, we can help them see the Lord in every aspect of their lives. It's tall order today, Lord. But you have promised us that if we are gathered in your name, and we ask you in your name to do things, it will be done in heaven. So collectively, I reach out to the hearts and minds of those who are with me today, and I make this simple prayer. Lord, restore our land. Hear our pleas. Turn us to repentance. Turn our soul and heart to you. Restore us. Rebuild us. Let us be that bright light, that shining light on that hill for centuries to come but only if we will repent and serve the one true God. And I make this my prayer in Jesus' precious name. Let all God's people say.